0: Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Bloody Disgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And today we're excited to be joined by Safe Room's first ever guest, a Bloody Disgusting.com contributor and podcaster behind The Good, The Bad, and The Spooky, a horror podcast which you can find on YouTube at The Haunted Drive-In. Uh,
1: welcome, Mr. Michael Sandel. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me here. I... I cannot believe I'm the first guest. I mean, you can only go up from here.
0: <laughs> I don't want to label you as a, uh, a guinea pig, but it's a pleasure
1: to have you and to uh, get to pick your brain about horror and, uh, of course, horror video games. Yeah, it's you know it's always something that I've enjoyed. I was always the uh, the spooky kid growing up. I, I think that's a very common story for anybody who's part of the horror yeah. community. But uh, horror games, I I feel are still kind of in their infancy and there's a lot of great stuff there's a lot of crap just like in mo- the movies oh, yeah. so i'm i'm excited to discuss it with you guys
0: yeah it really is a uh, an ever-evolving medium like most but yeah i think that's true of games in general and when you start talking about more niche genres of games right it's this idea that they're still growing and they're still learning and We're just all along for the ride of seeing uh, where we started and clearly where we're headed. So today, the topic you picked for us to discuss was uh, sort of the differences and the strengths of first-person and uh, third-person horror games. And uh, we talked a little bit before recording, and you had mentioned that you find third-person can actually be the scarier perspective uh, in the right development team's hands. So I'm curious kind of just to pick your brain on that.
1: Well, I mean, that's uh, obviously that's for me. I'm sure there's plenty Mm -hmm. of you you guys might disagree. I'm I'm sure listeners will. Um, But there's two things that make that the case for me when it is a good game made by uh, uh, skilled people is no matter what a first person game does, no matter how effective it is, no matter how polished it is, I still know on some level this is me playing a game and no matter what the atmosphere is like, and the absolutely, first-person games have scared me. I it took me five months to finish Amnesia: The Dark Descent because <laughs> I, I would just I would stare at those hallways and be like,
2: Oh yeah,
1: all right, time to fire <laughs> up Mario, you know.
2: But uh,
1: I, for me, I always know on some level that I'm playing a game, and you know, even if you're running from something, you can just have your character never turn around, or or you can pause it. You you go outside you know you uh, you move on to other things it's it's an experience and it can be a really well crafted one but nothing lasts for me when I when I play most first person games I won't say all but most uh, they're theme park rides to me but the kind of person I am the the kind of uh, way I connect with stories and this is certainly true of movies third person horror games are the same way because. I see the whole picture. I see everything unfolding, and I often have information that my characters, uh, whether I'm playing as them or observing them, do not. So I become that that person who's in the movie theater going, "Don't go in there! Don't go in there!" <laughs> and uh, I get scared for them. Um, and there's that creeping dread, especially if it's a cut scene or or some scripted event where you're like, "This is this is going to go very poorly for them." So when, it, when it's a game where the developers understand the genre and they understand the story that they want to tell, I, I usually go for the third
2: person stuff. With that being in mind, um, is there a game in particular in the third person that really sort of punctuates that for you that makes you think, yeah, this is definitive proof that this is why I prefer this?
1: Uh, there's two Do- that I always come yeah. back to um, that I'm excited <laughs> to see followed up on. Um, one of them, Actually, just got their sequel, um, but there's little nightmares and there's oxygen free. Uh, uh, yeah, yep. oxen free. I covered for Blade, disgusting, and uh, that was one of the reviews. I was I was really proud to to have written. It, there's there's so much. Not even uh, there is there is scary stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's <laughs> just so much tragedy in that game and things that yep. make you go, ah, oh, damn it, and. <laughs> and uh you know without without giving it away for anyone who hasn't played and absolutely should it's a cycle you know we uh it it it, it's a metaphor for the cycles that we go through in our own actual lives um that are tough to break out of no matter how motivated you might be so that one gets to me and then uh little nightmares um it's it's what you know Yahtzee of zero punctuation calls it the prime example of the small child scary world game, and there, there's, you know, there's a, a dozen or two dozen of those. But little nightmares, you know, up until the turn, and you know, you know what turn I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, you are just this tiny little girl, and and, and nothing's even proportionate. You know, there are there are you know dining room tables in that game that are eight feet high, and you know it's all just <laughs> off kilter. And I think it's supposed to be a representation of how everything is big and weird when you're a little kid and yeah. you're just making your way through this 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 place where everything wants to kill you, eat you or or worse. Um, and especially at early on in the game, like the first hour when you just like, you don't get a good glimpse, but something's lurking in the background and you know you're going to come across it later. You're like, crack your neck and go, okay, all right. <laughs> So those two, I've probably, since they've released, I've probably played both of them five times or more because I can't get enough. I want to take it back
0: for a second to something that you had said that really struck a chord with me, kind of the idea of maybe our perception of the way that something, a story is being told, right? I think with a lot of third person games, and especially horror games, it's this idea that I'm essentially like watching, it's almost like a movie playing out, right? And I agree with how you said it. I'm able to to root for the character and to be like, oh, don't go there, watch out, watch out, because we have more information than obviously. We can see more and we can start to see where maybe certain scenes are heading or you start to understand how the developer uses that perspective to sort of engineer scares and whatnot. And I always find that with those experiences, those can be the much more character focused and being like, okay, this is a narrative that I am experiencing that I myself am independent from. And I think Oxenfree is a fantastic example of that. But then with things like first-person perspective horror games, it's much more I'm in their shoes, right? And it kind of is that yeah. experience that you mentioned where, okay, I need to take a break for a little bit, or I just experienced that in playing through a certain section in uh, Resident Evil Village, right? This uh, haunted house <laughs> yeah. section that I think we all know what I'm referencing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, where I got through that section, and I'm very much in Ethan's shoes for that. And that is a much more of a heart-pumping kind of moment. And I don't bring this up to try to discredit... Uh, The idea that third-person horror is terrifying, because it can be just as terrifying, right? And you had mentioned that I think the cinematic nature of those scares is really in maybe more sort of like within cutscenes or just the ways in which they're able to really frame those scares so they are not missable for the player. Whereas with first-person, I think it's more about the sort of primal fear of I'm being chased or... Maybe like, oh, look, this thing is right in your face periodically, whereas with third person, I think they're unmissable and there is a quality to that that is cinematic, that maybe it makes that stand out more than sort of just a primal fear that I'm probably going to experience a couple times over the course of a first person perspective horror game. But I don't know necessarily that they always stand out as the defining moment of a game sometimes for me.
1: Yeah. Okay. I I think that there's validity to that. The
0: first third-person horror game that you really had this sort of profound um, realization that like, okay, third-person is where the horror resonates with me the most. You mentioned two that stand out to you, obviously, of course, but maybe what was the first that made you think about horror in a new way that made third-person really
1: resonate with you as your preferred? Yeah, I, I've got an answer for that, too. And you, you guys might... Uh, Nod in total agreement, or you might be like, The hell is he talking about? But uh, Super Mario 64 because uh, all good. previous Mario games were 2D run to the right, and uh, Mario 64, I, I think, was the first 3D game, or uh, or one of the first, anyway. It was the and... first decent one, <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll say that without without question. First decent yeah. one, you're, you're right about that, Neil. But, uh, you know, in the previous games, there were ghost houses, but uh, the ghosts were cute. And uh, the music was still very much Mario in Super Mario 64. Whatever was on on Nintendo of Japan's minds, they crafted this absolutely horrifying uh, location. You you drop into this birdcage. The boos still look like boos. They, They are very much Mario enemies. But you've got this this droning soundtrack that sounds like a dying monk just chanting. <laughs> you, you, you've got the eyeballs that follow you around and then, you know, spoilers for a game that came out in 1997 or whatever, that freaking piano that you're just walking through the room and then all of a sudden chomp, chomp. chomp. And I, I, you know, I was like barely 14 when I played that and I was like, what what are you doing to me, Mario? This is what, we we just like did a thing where we like met a friendly fish and you know swam along the ocean floor. This is uncalled for. <laughs> and uh, the the atmosphere of that totally unexpected in in a Nintendo game, I was like, wow, this uh this make me fear for Mario's well being. Like he'll he'll survive to face Bowser. He always does, but he'll need to see like a Mushroom Kingdom therapist after. it sounds like that was so traumatic you
0: might have had to as well but i definitely (laughs) like the uh the idea behind evolving the perspective from something that you were familiar with and this obviously new perspective from r64 but it's able to take familiar variables and enhance them in a way that is new and in this case terrifying i mean that's uh that is a testament to the third person perspective and just how it's able to take Variables that you've been familiar with throughout however many years we've all been playing games, and it's able to make them new and uh, enhance the horror element of them in a way that
1: uh, is terrifying for a whole new generation of gamers. Yeah. And it, and it is always effective when you were not expecting it. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a game, a uh, more recent game called A Hat in Time. Oh, yeah. And uh, really, really fun, really cute game. Like the kind of game like I would play with my four year old niece, and I think she would love. But there, there is, after all this cutesy stuff, there is a, a level in a mansion and you're basically uh, avoiding a shadow monster. And it, it goes really, really eerie really fast. So, yeah, that was a good a good swerve there, too.
2: I think we were just, um, I know you were talking about uh, earlier about the likes of Oxenfree and Little Nightmares, which is this sort of two-dimensional third-person perspective of things we, we've um, you know, just done an episode uh, for later use on Inside by Playdead, which uh, obviously follows a lot of the same things. And it, it's very true that um, it handles horror in a very specific way that I don't think would work in the first-person environment. Um, you've got, you know, that we were telling in there that you'll hear later that there's a finality to and dread to death in that game you know it's like it's when death happens it's very instant and often the lead up to it you kind of get a sense of when it's going to happen you know you aren't, you know when you failed and when you're going to die and there's this real horrific dread and it's only really sort of working because you can see everything you know that is going on around you at the time, you know how far that that enemy is away from you. You know that that will be it. That will be death, and you will be done. Yeah. And this is uh, something that third person very much is the only way you can achieve that. You know, um, first person has this problem where you know, as you said, it's like as long as you don't look behind you, you are very much. Kind of have this sort of false sense of uh, safety, you know, which, you know, in itself works as a medium of horror. But here it's like, you know, it just shows that both ways work. But there's effectiveness in third person horror that works, especially in that 2D space, as you were showing, that is just something quite remarkable in the right hands.
1: Yeah. It's the uh, it's the it follows uh, method.
2: Yeah, you know, yeah, perfectly, perfectly put, perfect, that is.
1: But you you actually uh, reminded me of, of something else. Is horror games in a lot of ways mirror the movies? You know, uh, funding goes towards you know these big budget titles um, that will you know get the sales, and horror fans want scares. They want something impressive and shocking, and. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. But there's got to be room for variety. And I am much more of a Evil Dead 2 or Tucker and Dale versus Evil guy than I am some of the more uh, heavy horror flicks. Okay, yep. And mm-hmm. I think we'll get there. But right now, it seems like first-person horror games and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Like I said, I'm sure listeners will because we, we have a smart bunch. Um, but it seems like right now at this stage in the in the business that first person horror games can only give you at least 90% of it is the serious and shocking and dreadful experience. There's not really room for the horror action or the horror comedy or, or a melding of genres like movies have achieved and like indie horror games are working towards.
2: Yeah, yeah, I get that completely because again, going back to what we were saying about inside, it's like it achieves comedy even in its darkest moments. <laughs> and absolutely and even Oxenfree, as you mentioned, is a very good example of that. But is, the dialogue in that game is full of like banter and jokes and mm-hmm. yet it blends seamlessly into the more horrifying and intimidating aspect of this cosmic horror that's going on around these characters and how they handle it. Yeah, I agree totally there, where you can see how people are interacting with each other, you know, including the character you are portraying. It does sort of sell that side of it.
0: Yeah, and I think also in terms of like first person games, not to overly generalize, but it seems that when so many horror games in the indie space are gravitating towards that, that inevitably there becomes this over-reliance on jump scares and you know that's like such a taboo kind of topic in terms of horror whether it be games or movies but it seems like such an obvious solution to scares with that point of view and whatnot. and then we end up being inundated with things that form an over-reliance on that and I agree that in terms of a variety I think that there are very I don't know if I would say few but there are not a uh, numerous examples of first person horror that does not overly rely on that. When you find a developer, and to your point, where you were talking about in the right hands or the right developer's hands, I mean, we recently talked about uh, Layers of Fear 2, and of course we ended up talking about Layers of Fear, and how the original one, it felt that it handled jump scares in a way that was refreshing, and that for a good portion of the game, it was not overly uh, used or relied on in a way that made them effective in a way that we've seen plenty of horror first-person games that have jump scares, and yet the ones in Layers of Fear stand out more. Or they felt like they served more of a significance that they were heightening certain elements, whether it be the narrative or just the sort of the psychological way that the environment uh, ever, is ever evolving in the original Layers of Fear. And then you go and you play some any no-name uh, haunting ha- haunted house game that you find that's an indie game, and it's every other turn and it lacks all of the narrative engagement. It lacks all of the sort of engrossing environment. And it ends up being that a lot of first-person horror games feel like they are sort of these one-note endeavors that go on for multiple hours at a time. And it just, it makes you think about the ones that really stand out in a way that it seems there are a lot more third-person perspective horror games that just have more variety, whether that be the term of the, uh, the types of horror that are used in them or just in general, the uh, the overall experience. It's not this one-note experience for five or eight hours or something like, I mean, we're talking about Inside a lot. That's a three-and-a-half-hour, roughly, experience that has horror elements, but it's ever-evolving in the types of horror, and there's bits of dark humor, and that comes across in how your character can get killed or events happening in the environment and these things that it never makes for a dull moment in a very short game, and yet... Neil and I just talked about it for 90 minutes when we weren't sure if we would make an hour out of it. So it kind of just shows the yeah. uh, the depth that certain things can have when you provide more variety, whether it be in the horror genre
1: or even maybe if it delves into other genres and the like. Definitely. And you know, jump scares, they're a tool. They're the same as CGI. It, it's all about how they're utilized. Um, I'm not anti-jump scares. Like, I'm, I'm no game developer. If I was and I was going to make a horror game, I would use jump scares to the point it became comedy. It, it would be like that episode of Community. Is that the same cat? Is someone throwing it? It would be like that. But uh, yeah, you know, you want you want a variety of experiences, and I think in the first person games right now, any comedy is kind of unintentional. Like I, I laughed uh, with Resident Evil um, eight simply because Ethan's, like, always commenting on how am I in this kind of freaky situation again. That's funny, but I I don't think Capcom intended it to be. They're just trying to write, you know... If the
2: Paul Walker of that franchise.
0: uh, (laughs) You know? Or when, like, this is his second game and people have been dying around him for a while and he exclaims in a village, he's like, why do people keep dying around me? He's like, (laughs) I don't think that line necessarily landed the way Capcom intended, but... You know, Some
1: unintentional comedy, and and in the past, I, I mean, it, it, as far as video games are concerned, I'm talking about ancient history. Mm. Video uh, horror games were much more comedy than horror, and that was not by design. It's because they were campy. You know, mm. I'm thinking of like Night Trap or something oh, of, yeah. of of that nature. <laughs> you know, they were a good time. At least I think so, but yeah, yeah you wouldn't call them scary in the
2: slightest. No, there, there's a there's plenty of horror that sort of falls into that camp in any medium, you know, where it's yeah. just entertainment first and horror second. And that's fine. Uh, that's fine. It depends on how the developers and the audience approach that, you know, it, it, in terms of how that works in, in the end. And Night Trap is a, a good example of maybe the developers didn't intend it to be quite so campy, but the audience did and it's a cult classic in that way you know it's an awful awful game (laughs) it it has an appeal you know in a way that you have lots of horror movies like that that you know they're low budget they don't make much sense and if you would judge them by the general medium of film you would say christ there were better things that came out of the 1920s than came out of uh, than this, but they have a schlocky entertainment value that mm. it can't be bought, you know. You, you yeah. can't replicate that if you tried, you know. And there has been plenty in both uh, horror games, horror film mediums where they've tried to replicate that 80s naffness. Mm. And it's a bit false because mm. they're, they're trying to replicate it whilst. Not having the ingenuity or the imagination or the batshit craziness that really made those things, you know, iconic and memorable in their own way.
1: There, there are two things in media that I think are near impossible to do. I've seen them done, but ninety nine percent of the time it doesn't work out. And those mm. two things are giving homage to something while mocking it. Yeah, and trying to keep comedy going at the same time. There's action, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. My most recent example I can think of that accomplishes accomplishes the latter is Zombieland Two, mm-hmm. because that that one take—it's not really a one take—but the one take fight with the uh, the souped-up zombies in that little wedding chapel <laughs> is an amazing bit of choreography and and uh, you know chaos, but the jokes kept going. And I'm like, man, why can't more people do this?
0: (laughs) I think, yeah, it's interesting. And it's not, it's removing the, the strengths and benefits of first and third person. It's that idea of horror that is not just meant to shock you. And I think that that's something that horror games would be fantastic to see them return to in terms of something along the lines of like, I'm thinking something that is in the horror realm point of it is not to scare you. It's more about just having this goofy romp, like we've been talking about and, Something that comes to mind that got ported recently was like Stubbs the Zombie which yeah. just got a re- yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not even a remaster it's just like a port which kind of came out of nowhere mm-hmm. but it's this idea that it's a game that yeah you play a zombie and you're uh in you're building up this zombie horde to overthrow this metropolis and whatnot and the goal of that game is never to scare anybody but it's this gleefully like hey we're going to kill all these people and make this big undead army and have a goofy time while throwing in some slapsticky uh, satire and taking shots at various uh, uh, societal elements and things like that. But then you also have something at the other end which is like Zombies Ate My Neighbors which again it's not really a scary game. There might be one or two things. That massive baby is quite terrifying when it tries to step on you. Agreed. But it's the type of game that first and foremost it has this arcade feel to it. It has this very childish nature. You're using squirt guns to kill zombies and all these creatures and things like that and you're throwing a dishes and popsicle sticks at people. And really outside of one or two little elements, like I said, it's not a game that is concerned with scaring you. It's an action, uh kind of like dark humor in a lot of ways, game that has an arcadey feel to it. And I think that there needs to be more of a reliance on horror, again, whether it be first or third perspective, that's more about being in the horror realm without maybe having some of the super dark dark, just disturbing tropes that I think a lot of people that maybe bounce off of horror, or even some people within that enjoy horror that maybe stay away from, like, jump-scare-heavy things, there has to be more sort of inclusive horror forms of entertainment, right? It doesn't just have to be terrifying. It can be I want to get chased around by a giant baby for whatever reason. Like, that's a horror (laughs) element, but there's like a slapsticky funny element to that, and there's gameplay that goes along with that that you don't have to pause every fifteen minutes to catch your breath. You can kind of just do couch co-op and have this fun slapsticky time that happens to operate within the uh, the realm of horror.
1: Yeah. A total sidebar, gentlemen. Yep. uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbors and the sequel, uh, uh, Gold Patrol. Yep, are going to be on uh, Nintendo Switch, PS4, PC, and Xbox One at the end of this month with new features. Mm. And Neil doesn't know yet, but I.
0: And- I plan on having an entire episode dedicated to that <laughs> because that was my first uh, my first horror game that I ever played as a kid, and it's one that I've had to uh, dig the Super Nintendo out for more than on more than one occasion to uh, to force my friends to play couch co op in the recent years. Fantastic!
1: So. I think my first horror game would have been Ghosts and Goblins. Mm. Yeah, it was on the Sega Master System. Oh man! Yeah. I mean, what was your experience with that? Did you find that it
0: was very sort of accessible horror in that way? Were there terrifying elements to it? Or were you able to be like, oh, these are some elements of horror that I think I gravitate towards whether I know it or not in kind of your formative horror years, or was it more like, oh, this is elements that I enjoy within horror that also has an arcadey quality to
1: it? You know, it was a good gateway. Um, It was never especially frightening. There there were some enemies some designs that are like "Ooh, that's creepy but it's it's definitely an action game first and foremost and i think like most of us my main feeling my main emotion was anger at realizing i had to do the game twice (laughs) (laughs) because because they didn't they can't be bothered to program more levels i guess
0: (laughs) but that's a great example right it's a gateway horror i think that That uh, conversation, I think, happens a lot in the film realm of horror, right? This idea that we have people that argue all the time like, well, PG-13 horror isn't real horror and R-rated horror is the only horror. But the reality is, is that you have to have at every single age level varying degrees of horror, right? And they have to be accessible. Otherwise, you're very rarely going to have people that dive right into horror as soon as they can access that, uh, the R-rated or M-rated horror entertainment, right? So- you have to have these things that draw variables from horror properties that people won't experience for years or maybe even a decade but you have to kind of like give them that that itch that they just keep coming back to and they need to scratch and for me i mean that was zombies ain't my neighbors like there's all of these horror uh, icons and elements and monsters and things that i recognize but it lacks obviously graphic content it lacks gore and blood and all these things that For me, like that's what I want to consume in terms of horror media now that I'm an adult, but you can't consume that as a kid or if you have parents that forbid you from that's not a reality. So I think that media like that, whether it be Ghosts and Goblins and things like that, like that serves a real functionality more than obviously being entertaining, but it starts a love, a lifelong love of horror, in many cases, whether it's terrifying
1: or not. Well, I have a thought, but first, Neil, I, I want to know: Do you remember your first horror game?
2: Oh yeah, it's uh, the original Resident Evil. I think I talked mm-hmm. about it before. It's like uh, a friend of mine who had, a, who was in money, uh, had a PlayStation, and rented the original Resident Evil, and he got up to the first zombie bit. You know, and in that time, you see obviously the dog massacre at the beginning and then you see that zombie feasting on one of the stars' team members and it was just like it was a time where I was only just sort of getting into horror properly and it was just like this is exciting and it was annoying in a way that he chickened the fuck out and I didn't get (laughs) to see the rest of that game uh, until I got PlayStation like uh, two years later and I was already obsessed with Resident Evil 2, so Resident Evil 2 ended up being the game that I I really went through entirely, and loved as a horror game because of uh, my love of sort of zombie-based stuff. But yeah, that moment in the original game was just so eye-opening in terms of video games because at that point. I played football games and WWF, WWE games and that was and the odd thing here and there and it was just like this whole new world to me and it was brilliant to see this thing that was so nasty and mean as campy as it could be, it still had such a sharp edge to it and it was amazing and I, I think As much as i credit resident evil 2 as being the moment the thing that really got me into horror gaming i think without that initial teaser if you will for with the first game i i never would have had that you know because it it was just it showed me a side of games that i hadn't ever seen before and even then you know it was. I'd seen probably Alien versus Predator on the Atari Jaguar. I think it was the only other thing I'd seen that was even remotely close to horror, and that did kind of freak you out a little bit when you were up against you know the the predators and stuff. But that was kind of like titillation at that point for me because. I was so into Alien and Predator anyway, and it was like, oh, wow, going up against these is, like, amazing. You know, like, it it wasn't so scary. And I think, as we discussed in the Alien Isolation episode of the podcast, you know, that was the first time I really got what Alien was, you know, in terms of uh, making it terrifying and a thing, you know, making it what Alien should be. And those games were just like, Wish fulfillment in terms of I want to be a marine fighting against these creatures. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's a long way of saying Resident Evil. That was the one.
1: No, that's <laughs> a hell of a first horror game. <laughs> 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 I, I, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, wait to start." Like you, you just uh, hit hit the gas right away. You look back now and you're like, "Oh well, it's it's kind of goofy and all, but but oh, yeah." Uh, but back in what was that? 98 99 96, Maybe earlier.
2: Yeah, ninety six. I think when it came 96. out. Ninety seven, and then I played. Uh, ninety six. Yeah. Yeah, and I played two. I think at the end of ninety eight, and it was um, yeah. So it's running that sort of, sort of time, which is uh, as I said to Jay before, was the time I sort of started watching zombie movies, and I was obsessed with the whole idea of how zombies come about and all this stuff, and it was just yeah, it all tied in. Wonderfully,
0: I think that that also just shows that it doesn't really matter the uh, because I mean, in terms of Michael and my first experience with a horror game, it was not something that was sort of like the adult version of horror, right? And you had the opposite experience; you went with for the time like the most gruesome, most graphic horror game you could think of, (laughs) and yet we all we all arrived at the same place, right? And I think that that shows the varying levels and. The importance of both of those, right? You don't have to have the types of content that are in Resident Evil to formulate a lifelong love of horror. Whereas, when you start at sort of like the top of the horror mountain with your uh, first game (laughs) experience, it it, maybe it uh, ensures you have a your lifelong love of horror starts sooner. But it's one of those things that it just proves you need to have both. And the idea that you could ever have one over the other is not realistic in terms of sort of fostering this ever expanding, it feels, at least in my lifetime right now. It feels like this is the time when horror is the most accessible or maybe the most popular amongst age groups because when, I mean, Michael started the show by saying something along the lines of I mean, we were always like the spooky kids or the kids that gravitated towards these things, but I mean, how many of us had more than a handful of friends that were also into horror at our age?
1: Oh, none. Um, Absolutely none. (laughs) I mean, I had maybe
0: two, and they were the two whose parents... Uh, didn't give a shit what they watched or played Mm. so I had to live vicariously through them and I said well have you heard of uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbors and they were like what the hell's that (laughs) Uh, they were like we're playing Resident Evil and I was like I don't know what that is I don't have a Playstation (laughs) you
1: know though you you need those gateways you do you you need both like you said Mm -hmm. but like we'd I mean my gosh we'd have like three different generations of horror fans that would not exist if not for Scooby Doo Mm -hmm. you know like that stuff is massively important and yeah uh, yeah, your your tastes grow. You get older. You want you want the the more gory or or uh, out there stuff. But there are, there are definitely nights where I sit down and I just want to watch like you know Halloween Six or you know something it's mm-hmm. just re- ridiculous. Well, I mean, you see it even in things like
0: uh, Afraid of the Dark being rebooted, right, for Nickelodeon. Yeah, um, it's one of those things where I mean. I'm almost 30, I watched the first season and I enjoyed it, right? It's this idea that just because you have this horror that is maybe not meant for adults, it can still be enjoyed by adults. Maybe saying it's not meant for adults is not the way to phrase that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just say that there is horror that is meant for up-and-coming fans or people that haven't explored it yet, and yet it's accessible both ways, right? It's accessible to the youth, but also seasoned horror fans can still find elements of it that they enjoy, and I think it's more of a testament to, if anything, like just good writing, right? You don't have to have sort of the graphic nature of mature horror to have horror
1: that is enjoyable in most uh, regards. Jay, Neil, I I just turned thirty seven and I still once in a while think about Zebo the Clown from Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> so <laughs> I still do. So I yeah, absolutely. It's it's for everybody, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah it's like um one of my first uh, horror experiences was uh, sneaking down and watching my horror was recorded on TV that night. And my first one was like uh, The Terminator. Uh, mm. And the first thing I ever saw in that film was pretty much towards the end where they think they, they killed it and then it rises up at the flames. And that burned itself in my head for so long as a scary thing, and the same with um, the film House, not the Japanese one, the American, and the whole uh, succubus that he ends up chopping into pieces and putting in uh, bin bags thing. That that also ended up being like this thing I watched in isolation out of an entire film, and. You know, it got interrupted because my mother came down uh, to me watching that two in the morning uh, and was like outraged by the idea. I think it was nine, I don't think at the time. So it's like, And yeah, so it was like, but it stayed with me. And it, like, I think I, uh, this is an, in an article recently, I, I was saying about uh, the film Ghoulies and how that poster. <laughs> Drove my imagination to places that, that I didn't see that film until like 10 in the last 10 years. And before that, it, it haunted my dreams for years because that little green fucker on the poster, it's like <laughs> he would turn up in my dreams constantly, hounding me. Um, you know, pers- and I think that's like the key thing in a lot of the horror I liked growing up was um, the idea of this unstoppable being that would come after you you think Resident Evil 2 when you do the second playthrough you you have the Tyrant or Nemesis where you have the Nemesis and like I said Terminator was there and that was always the thing where he's always coming for you and you can't stop him and like that and that's what translated through to the, the Ghoulies thing where like the dreams would be like this thing no matter where I went he would show up and be after me and yet you know, it's like that was the rare thing where i ended up watching the film later and it's like this is nothing like i ever imagined and it's disappointing you know and but the impact this film that i'd never seen had had on me is ridiculous you know and it's amazing and as much as i think the film was crap you know it was really great in a way, because it had this massive impact on my life because of what it
1: did. Well, and they and they they knew what they were making, Neil. They they knew oh, it, they knew it was crap. I mean, that's why there's a toilet on the post. But mm. <laughs> but yeah, that does make me think, though. I wonder if part of this, I wonder if part of this, is, uh, and the way I feel about first person versus third person does have to do with marketing. Because let's talk about Resident Evil Village again. Lady Dimitres. Capcom knew what they were doing. Uh, oh. she, she was a fetishized design. And by the way, uh, thank you, Capcom. Um, <laughs> but she's a fetishized design, and then, of course, when the first teaser comes out, the internet runs with it. So by the time the game released, you'd seen her at least three times a day for a, a solid month.
2: Yeah, and and I, I mean, even now, it's like you yeah. see people like Cosplaying, uh, streaming as them, as the character, and it's like uh, even at a point now where we know that that's not the strongest point of the game. It's like it's still the iconic thing.
1: Yeah. So again, thank you, Capcom. But uh, <laughs> but all that to say, uh, the marketing—you uh, know—these AAA games, they, they they pour almost as much into marketing as they do development. Sometimes, mm. 100%. Uh, Yeah. And these smaller games don't have those resources so uh, good or bad you, you don't know to you play sometimes but I, I wonder if they're helped um, in terms of, of their spook factor by just putting out a poster and a enigmatic trailer and calling it a day
2: yeah, yeah. You know? I can see that because I think again uh, we're talking about an episode in the future here but inside we're saying uh, how much was Based on the big moment in that game, you know, uh, towards the end, and that's what people talk about, you know, rather than about the subtext and all the underlying themes and all these great things that you could dig out of that game. That's not really whatever gets discussed. It's always the the thing that happens towards the end because it's the most upfront, in your face thing. And posters are very much like that. They are. A personification of what you know ends up being talked about, you know. And uh, you think in a lot of movies and games now, you know, people will sort of pick apart a poster or a trailer and say, "Oh, this is going to happen because of this, and this is going to happen with that." And it becomes this whole show in itself that sort of detracts from the message of the initial story. And that works maybe more for AAA games because, you know, you can sort of hide some of your flaws in that. And I think this is very, very true in the case of Resident Evil Village where, you know, the Lady Gemma stuff is the the forefront of everything still, despite it being quite disappointing in retrospect now uh, compared to some of the stuff that follows it. And yet, here it is. It is now, that's it. It doesn't matter how it... Was in the story, people know that's a thing. People who don't really, who maybe played 10 minutes of the game or have seen someone play it on the internet, that's all they care about. They care about, oh, Lady Dimitris. They, they won't know about uh, any other great stuff that's in that game.
1: And again, though, like they knew what they were doing. I, you know, oh, yeah. we can't say that we never bought a CD of a no-name band because there was an attractive body on the cover. Very true. I think also in terms of marketing when you're talking about perspective
0: in games, it's interesting that like with Resident Evil especially, all the tra- a majority of the trailers again had her in the forefront, right? It was right in your face, you couldn't miss it. Whereas when I think of something like Inside, that trailer that i remember at least as best my memory serves me is the idea that it was more about the variety of landscapes that i was exploring it was not so much concerned with putting something directly in your face for any long period of moments where it allowed me to almost formulate not that inside necessarily tells you a lot about its world even when you play it uh but it's the idea that I feel that with Third Perspective, it allows you to view an entire landscape, and in that case of the trailer, a variety of landscapes, that you almost form your own narrative. So when I went into it the first time, I didn't really have expectations other than, I want to explore this fantastical dark world that is very, very confusing and yet very enticing because of the variety and sort of, I wanted to get to know different elements of its world and its construction. Whereas... With something like Resident Evil Village, when you're talking about that character, it's the idea that it was, because of the perspective, it was shoved in your face so much that when the focus is on that, you can't not walk away from that and assume, well, this is going to be the drive of the game. And that's entirely because of marketing, and it's this idea, well, if this is at the forefront of all of the marketing, essentially, and you're seeing it, like you said, three times a day, and if you're on Twitter, probably 15 times a day, (laughs) it's the idea that you can't walk away from that marketing and not imply that, well, this is a central figure of this experience. And again, not to not to say if it was in third person or not, but like, I think back to classic Resi in that sort of third person fly on the wall. I definitely never walked away from any trailer or anything like that and was like, well, this one character is going to play either a central role or they are the drive of the experience. I always was more enraptured with the environment and sort of getting to know the nooks and crannies of it and that was what the drive was for me in the marketing of those and wanted me to experience it so even if I never necessarily got all the details of a certain environment or things like that I didn't go into it with a preconceived notion that well this is going to be the sole sort of like focus of the experience I was much more open to wherever the narrative or exploring that
1: space would kind of lead. And I think games are working on um, on developing lasting characters too, because you, you think of horror movies, I mean there is mm-hmm. you, you can easily rattle off these iconic villains. You, okay. Michael, Jason, Freddy, Chucky, you, you could say Sam from Trick or Treat, I would say Sam. Um, oh, yeah. Pinhead, really you know. There, there's, there's loads. But I, outside of maybe I'd say Pyramid Head from Silent Hill there's not a whole lot of characters from horror games that you look at and you point and go yeah they're gonna be around in 20-30 years
2: I mean and that's that's the funny thing about that with Pyramid Head is that 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 then became this sort of thing that Konami used over and over again without context Hmm. you know he was very much part of a very particular story but at that point, he became you know, franchise material, so they used him in whatever context they needed to, you know, uh, In even up to the point of uh, Silent Hill Homecoming and in Dead by Daylight. He's there, you know, and it, it makes no sense, but people don't care because he is an iconic figure. And, I mean, that's not too different from what you get in many horror movies where they that character live and live and live and live well beyond their means. But, yeah, it, it's damning, maybe, that that's the character that really sticks out compared to, say, several of the Resident Evil villains who've either been ruined by remakes and sequels or... Reinvigorated because they weren't that interested to begin with. I I think Mr. X in Resident Evil Two Remake. Look at the the fervor that was there around that character that was never there in the first time round because it was like you had to complete the game and then do it again to even see that character. And Nemesis, they went the opposite way where it was so integral to why Resident Evil Three was so amazing and so intense. And yet, the second time around, it was like, they've done dirty by this character because they've not understood the project of why Mm. it works. And, you know, he is a classic stalker character and you've basically given his job to a different character in the last remake you did. And, yeah, maybe this is where horror games need to learn a bit more from movies is that you can create iconic characters if you don't just make them be this one-off thing, you know, because it it happens too often where it's like I mean, you can get away with bringing them back, sure, but as we said the fact that Pyramid Head is this iconic figure in video game horror and yet he gets brought back time and again when it really shouldn't be because he's a very personal part of someone's story you know, It, it should we need more characters to have a better reason to come back over and over again and I think Resident Evil is another very good point of this where when they do bring back these big monsters it's usually in a multiplayer game or just because right. they're a variant of something else you know you know Mr. X himself is a, is a variant of the tyrant from the end of Resident Evil mm. and but he doesn't ever feel that way because of the way they handle it we need more of that, you know. If we, I think, if you, I get that you want to do different horror, and I am fully for experimental, adventurous, ambitious horror that doesn't need to rely on that sort of thing. It's really strange that we don't have many franchise horror villains when we have many big villains that come back again and again and again in video games with very little reason or rhyme, you know, behind them. And yet we can't seem to do that.
0: Yeah. One one game that I wish was not multiplayer uh, was Dead by Daylight because I just love the mm. monster design. And I'm not a huge multiplayer gamer, so I bounced pretty hard off of that game. But I love the variety of monster de- of the original ones. Obviously, yeah. they have the tie-ins and things like that. But I'm talking more specifically the original creatures that they design with these full, long-fledging backstories and abilities. And for the most part it seems like they aren't sort of just, this is the ranged variant, this is the close quarters variant. Yeah. They feel like they're these wholly organic, original horror icons that you can tell that there has been a great deal of development in making them feel like they belong in this world, more so than, again, this is just a variant on the specific combat type. And I would love to see that passion, that love of horror be applied to a single-player game, whether it be a new franchise or just a just a one-off game, right? It's this idea yeah. that sure, if you want to bring something back down the line, like in Resident Evil, which they keep doing, but the introduction of that character, I feel, or that creature it can't feel like it's serving just to be brought back or just serving to be like, well, this is going to be the next iconic character It's one of the, I mean it, Dead by Daylight's one of those games that I know lots of people enjoy, my bias against multiplayer or whatever, notwithstanding It's this thing that I just wish that that same passion was applied to an entire game or an entire section of a game. And games like that give me hope that we can get new, fresh experiences yeah. like that. It's just, you gotta find the right project, right? It's this dream, this dream, uh, dream situation where you get this project that really embraces that and it embraces this creativity and passion for horror in a way that. It becomes iconic because of how memorable it is for being terrifying or yeah. uh, tied to a specific character like you had mentioned with pin, um, with Pyramid Head. The idea that he's not just creepy looking, there was past tense, a significance that used to be tied to him, whereas that's been lost now in bringing him back because he's so iconic that you can't not have him it seems in a further uh, future sequel. Yeah,
1: you, you divorce the emotional context and it it's just a guy in a mm-hmm. yeah. giant head. But yeah, you know, I, I, I think I have an idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a juicy game idea right now. Okay. Uh, if any developers, uh, larger, smaller listening, we're not asking much. We're asking for physical copies and just five, <laughs> 5% five of net sales. That's it. But here, here's what needs to happen. Um, First-person games, they, they put you in the shoes of the protagonist. Whereas a lot of horror movies, not not recently, but certainly back in the day, they forced you to be looking through the eyes of the killer, Mm. right? And that was like, there's nothing you can do. You're watching all this go down. You know, the opening of Halloween, uh, iconic. So Mm. here's what I think we need. And obviously, you know, it's going to take a very dedicated team. I think it could work. I think it could be really cool. We need a game where you are always looking through the eyes of the killer. And the killer is controlled by AI, and he's always looking for victims. But you control the victims, and the only way you can see to control them and get them away is by looking at a tiny little map in the bottom right. Hmm. So I like that idea, flip flop. So you cannot control <laughs> where you're looking at all, or or hmm. what you're seeing, or when the or when the the eyes turn to look at the next room. That's not on you. It's on you to get away when you see a person in your sight. Yeah. Yeah, the little
0: role reversal there, I think that is the way to go about if you're going to try to make this new horror experience, right, is that you want to flip-flop it and finding the innovative ways you can do that and keep that fresh for more than a handful of hours is the real challenge. But yeah, I think, especially when people just, it it seems, not to generalize, but it seems like a lot of, especially indie horror, were kind of regimented in these set experiences, devoid of the whole... First or third um, preferences in terms of perspective, but it just seems like there are three or so types of experiences out there right now, and a lot of them seem to be like trend based, right? I think there's uh, this stretch of development with, within the indie community where it's like, well, what's 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 popping on Twitch, right? Let's yeah. try to yep. latch on to yeah. that, and we'll uh, we'll we'll carbon copy that to a certain degree, and then we'll add a little flair to it. But it seems that that would be the future of horror and you would hope that like we get more and more innovation in the types of horror experiences. We talked about variety earlier. It's not just the variety of scares or the variety of genres that are dabbled in, but the variety of literal gameplay and the role of the player and the sort of agency that's tied to that. You're in the eyes of the antagonist now and you're still rooting for the protagonist. Like that's one of those types of concepts that it could be the basis for like the next sort of progression in the horror experience and I think it's great that we can have conversations that really hone in on like a niche corner of a genre or maybe just talk about our personal, personal preference in terms of things like perspective because in the long run you would hope that in everyone talking about their preferences we each walk away with something that could potentially fuel the next new horror experience because of anything. That only enables all of us to feel uh, terrified or just enjoying ourselves within the horror realm.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you get really effective scares when you make the player feel helpless, but there's got to be more ways to do that than just, oh, for this mission, you don't have your guns. Yeah. You know? There, there's mm-hmm. there's got to be some more creativity.
2: Yeah, absolutely, because there are many examples, popular examples of that, where I, I, I mean, personally, I don't feel it works. I, I think of Outlast and its sequel, where you have this whole oh I'm helpless I'm helpless I'm helpless but I'm gonna it adds that moronic side to the found footage formula where you know it's like someone's gonna hold up a camera for the entire time for no reason and (laughs) it just becomes a farce you know it becomes (laughs) it becomes distracting you know you're really supposed to be involved in oh my god I'm in this asylum that is full of people that were out to kill me, and they're not normal in any way, shape, or form. Even beyond the realms of, oh, they're in an asylum. They have this whole other unique property to them, and yet that is never the focus in games like that. It, the focus is, oh, here's this gimmick. You have a corner because we like the Blair Witch fucking project. That's it, <laughs> I, and it's never there as a thing that should be, you know, front and center. It, you could take that out of that entire series, and it would be fine.
1: There's a uh, there's a YouTube video that I love from a channel yeah. called Pixels Pixels Per Second um, yeah. called Hell No the sensible horror film. Have you seen this? <laughs>
2: I think I've heard of this. The, sure. the, the
1: the whole pitch was like characters making rational decisions, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there's a bit there's a found footage bit where it's like. Why do you still have the camera up? He's like, people need to know, people need to see this. And then like a monster attacks and goes, Oh, forget this, and he just drops the camera, and it's yeah. like a, a good ten <laughs> seconds of it lying on the street. It's like, yeah, yeah, that makes way more sense. I mean,
2: that's what always amazes me when people rag on Blair Witch Project for that. It's like I get it in the sense of Blair Witch Project because yeah. they're filmmakers and they want to capture the experience. When you get to stuff like Cloverfield, for instance, it's like, it gets a bit ridiculous that con- that guy's constantly holding the camera, because it doesn't make any sense to so the story. It's like, nah, you would have dropped that about 16 times before you got to this point. Or cracked by debris. Yeah, yeah, yeah all of that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it
1: kind, it kind of makes sense in Outlast. He's a reporter, he's looking for this story. Oh, sure. But then, you know, I just... like I was making my own comedy, like we talked about, because... There's that bit where you're in the lower levels of the asylum, and there's there's uh, insane folks everywhere, and there's those two twins who always chase you. Yeah. So I, uh, mm-hmm. when I got separated, you know, there's like a a grate between us, and they can't touch me. I'm just <laughs> like zooming in with the night vision. I'm like, my report needs twenty minutes of this guy's <laughs> penis. You know, <laughs> the story's okay. not complete without it. <laughs>
2: Which, yeah, it would make sense as a subversion if they let into it, but they don't. It's just like, we thought this was cool, and we did it. And, yeah, that's true of a lot of horror games. I think perspective, again, plays a lot of uh, a thing into that. And I can see why you would think third-person horror can do things that first can't, because first-person is such an, can be such a lazy crutch you know, in terms of like, well, you're going to have everything come at you. You might hear some things around you if you're sensible enough to uh, make that part of your game. But generally, it's uh, stuff's going to jump at you in front. You know, I think as far back as your clock towers and in the darks and resident evils, you know, horror could come from anywhere, you know, and you didn't have the control over it. You know, that you, know, you do with a first person camera that you know both work in the right hands as you say but in third person no matter you, you surely have more freedom over what you see and yet you can still lose out and be manipulated in a way that is not doable in a first person perspective
0: and that manipulation really aids the um the tension and the fear and the terror and all these things, right? It's this idea that once in a while the developer is going to say, Well, we actually know the best way for you to experience this. And that's one yeah. of the elements that I think is the biggest crutch for first is that giving the player freedom doesn't mean that everyone is going to have the exact same experience. Right. Obviously, there are going to be certain portions of a game that you can't miss because of cutscenes and things like that. But I don't know. I find that. But like it's such an obvious example, but like the original Resident Evil, right, when the dog comes crashing through the uh window. Yeah. That is a moment that nobody that plays that game is going to miss, right? Yeah. Exactly. More or less. But with things like uh Alien Isolation or something like that, outside of the cutscenes, there's definitely horrifying moments that I only recognize or only experienced my second playthrough because I was like, well, I'm not gonna be overly adventurous. I'm gonna kinda mm. just I gotta beat this in a finite amount of time. I'm gonna kinda go from A to B and just be on my way and I ended up actually seeing more that time that I did not see the first time and I want to go back to one thing Neil that you said this idea that something like um, Outlast where I feel like there's not a lot of trust that developers give to the players and maybe that has something to do with and you and I have been on a a tear about that recently just this idea that like it's such a young medium in a lot of ways especially horror games where they don't trust the audience to not tune out within the span of, like, three minutes, I feel, with a lot of these things, right? They're so reactionary that, well, we can't not have a jump scare every five minutes or 20 minutes because our audience is going to lose interest. Whereas with something that is in the third-person perspective, like coming back to, uh, to Inside, which we've been referencing a lot, this idea that the developer is asking the player to trust in them, and then that has that massive payoff at the end, yeah. right? But also moment to moment. They're giving us the most opportune perspective so that we don't miss a moment of what they're trying to convey. And that's not to say I don't enjoy first-person perspective horror, but it is something that first-person perspective horror, I think, is at a disadvantage with, or rather developers need to trust more in their audience that, hey, they're not gonna tune out if I don't barrage them or give them a barrage of jump scares and things mm-hmm. like that every 20 minutes or so, which, in the long run, talk about pacing like that can be a killer with first-person perspective horror. Like we've been saying with the Outlast games, it's just like you're so overstimulated by jump scares that by an hour and a half in or two hours in, you're kind of like, "Yeah, I'm
1: expecting that. This no longer does anything for me." Yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, candid with you guys. I played the first Outlast, did not finish it because I reached a point where I'm just like, "I don't care what happens to this guy," and. <laughs> And I read a synopsis of the second one, and I hated it based on that alone.
2: <laughs> I mean, you were not wrong to be honest. I, I, I hate that game. I was going to say you're
1: barking up the right tree with Neil <laughs> on it. LS too. Good to get to know. <laughs> but I, you know, it, pacing is important, and it's it's you know, first person or third person, it's a skill. Like I think my favorite first person horror is Amnesia: of The Dark Descent, and you don't know this when you first play it, uh, but I don't think you're even able to kill yourself until, like, an hour and change in. Mm. You know? Mm. I I, I think, like, when that first time you see a grunt, and that is, to me, a truly horrifying design. The more you look at it, the sillier it gets, but the the game knows that things are scarier the the less chance you get to see it. So the game does that very well. And I think that first encounter where it's, like, at the end of a hallway and you crouch in the corner... I don't think you're even able to approach it. Um, I think if you like like forced yourself to move forward through the uh, through the going crazy effects that it would it would disappear like that like that uh hallucinatory one later on. Yeah. Uh like you don't know that. The the atmosphere is the first time you play, the atmosphere is, is so strong and the sound design so assured. Uh, I mean that's a that's a huge win for that game. It sounds absolutely, absolutely yeah.
0: I will say though that is one of the strengths that I find with first person perspective horror in that it is really able to get into the person that you're playing as is like their the psychological side of horror in a way that I don't necessarily know I've seen examples of frequently in third person perspective unless it was. Dialogue, or whether it was an internal monologue, right? This idea that when you're in first person, especially talking amnesia with the fear and whatnot, and the light management and darkness, I mean, that is an element of that game that I define that game by better than any others, I think. And that's been something that was prevalent uh, throughout... uh, I haven't played uh, A Machine for Pigs, but in terms of Dark Descent and uh, Rebirth, like that is an element that is so intrinsically tied to that, and it makes... Situations that we've probably had previously in other first-person perspective horror games, it heightens them to a degree that it makes them memorable. And that's a feature that, again, I don't know if you... I think it's all based, obviously, on the perspective and how it's able to have, like, the darkness close in and then you hear your teeth chattering and all these things. It's an element of first-person that I think third-person could perhaps learn some type of development from... Other than just like a character talking to themselves or an inner monologue of like, oh man, I have to. I'm, this is this is getting to be too much. I gotta I gotta find some light type moments. Um, not to say that there aren't any, but just in terms of uh, speaking generally, I do have one example.
1: Um, okay, I'm actually planning on, on writing about it for Blade Disgusting. Fantastic. Um, it it's a game called Reveal the Deep. Have Have you gentlemen either? Have you played that? I've I have. <laughs> so the game starts out. You are a deep sea diver. And you are going through this wreck, pretty pretty standard. Uh, you're 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 basically uh, checking out this steamship that's been sunk for uh, you know a long time now. And there are spooky happenings. Something's not quite right. It gets darker and deeper, um, just as you'd expect. But uh, this third person game, which is a what they call I think chunky pixel style too, the story is is it starts with these long dead people on the ship and then starts weaving in a bit of the backstory of your intrepid diver yeah and you start seeing things you know it's the kind of tricks you've seen before in other horror media but you you start you start seeing things that shouldn't be in this sunken underwater wreck and uh that have personal meaning to you and you're like this is getting very odd. And I, that, that is probably the best example that I've played of a third-person horror game digging into your protagonist.
0: I will say this game for anybody that's interested is a dollar on Steam and it's compatible with both Windows and Mac. And I'm definitely buying this as soon as we're done recording because this looks right up my alley. Art style wise, the idea that I'm looking at the uh, screenshots, it looks like you're picking up pages that kind of detail the ship's uh, ill-fated uh, future and whatnot, and uh, it just looks right up my alley. And it's only apparently two hours to beat, which perfect to finish in one sitting, so yeah. that looks excellent, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to your piece on it, because that uh, that has piqued my interest. Yeah,
1: well, I, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did, and uh, yeah, I think I finished it in, in two, two and a half. It's great, too, and this is actually something that I really uh, appreciate about your
0: writing for uh, BladeDisgusting.com, this idea that the things that we're talking about and the perspective that we're talking about, and when we talk about indie horror and triple A, AAA, you do a really great job, I think, of highlighting games that, again, I had never heard of that, and I consider myself to be somebody that is fairly in the know with uh, horror games, if I can be so bold. But it's the idea that there are so many games that tap into so many elements that we've been talking about, about what makes horror special, whether it be first- or third-person perspective. And, um, yeah, I'm just... It, It's great that, again, you're continuing to bring to light a lot of these uh, hidden gems or potential hidden gems that really kind of dig into the elements of horror that, our preferences aside,
1: at the end of the day, it makes for good horror, which we can all appreciate. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Jay. And I I do like finding the, the diamonds in the rough, but I should tell you that negative reviews are coming, so... (laughs) i think
0: every good critic has to have a negative review every once in a while to show we don't just love everything no matter what our uh, (laughs) various comment sections seem to think
2: (laughs) oh yeah you you, you've definitely got to seek out the the uh the rubbish now and again just to uh realign your perspective on what a a good game and a bad game are (laughs) I yeah. believe me. I played bad horror games, <laughs> very bad horror games in my time. And it's uh... there there's
1: one that is in my Steam library somewhere, and I it it is so bad to me that I forget the name right now. <laughs> um, but it's 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 first person. It is like you know, it, if I could call it trope parade, that's what I would call it, <laughs> like cliche avenue, uh, and it, it's. <laughs> is a a foreign dev team, I'm not sure from where, but they did an English translation that is, it's almost beautiful in how bad it is.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think of stuff like uh, Deadland, which is basically an endless runner in first person, and it's just so, it's a zombie endless runner. That sounds
0: awful, in first person?
2: Yeah, and it's just, yeah. It, it seems to have required the minimum effort to make it work. It, it, it is one of those that really just sort of struck me as like, you know, I get it. You wanted to make some a, a couple of bucks, fair enough, but uh, there's nothing to it. It is the most standard idea of what you'd expect of that. Mm-hmm. I think of the uh, Dead Island spin-off Escape Dead Island, just is like this cell-shaded third-person game, which is probably the biggest argument against, uh, what well, Michael's point of uh, personal horror being um, effective, because it is just it's wank to
1: Oh, I found the one I was talking about. Oh, you did? Okay, Lurk in the Dark.
2: Lurk in the Oh, okay. I think I know L- the way. Lurk, you know. Lurk
1: in the Dark. It, if you want to check it out, it is free, and it, uh, it's
2: something. It's free at half the price, as they <laughs> say. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll, I'll
1: tell you this, you won't be bored.
2: Cuba. I mean, that, that's the bare minimum. Uh, I mean, I always cherish that about bad horror games. There's, there's always, I remember them. There's uh, a level it, of
0: entertainment there.
2: Yeah, it, the boring ones, uh, the, the biggest virus against uh, horror. You know, the ones that... Don't do anything interesting, but are competent, uh, far less interesting than the the wrecks, you know. And I mean, again, very true of any medium. I think of horror. Uh,
1: One of my favorite uh, YouTubers uh, doesn't normally talk about horror. Uh, Her name's Lindsay Ellis. Oh, yeah. And she was talking about um, different movies. Uh, She mentioned Chris Columbus and. director Chris Columbus and director Joel Schumacher. Oh yeah. And she said, Mm -hmm. Columbus is boring, but competent. Schumacher is neither.
2: (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's a good sum up. (laughs) Uh, That is highly accurate.
0: (laughs) One last question, Michael, before we kind of wrap up, but in talking about obviously preferred perspectives and things like that, what do you think of games recently or within the last, I don't know, five years that are kind of like making a transition from their original perspective into new perspectives. Case in point being something like Resident Evil, right? Resident Evil going from classic third on fly on the wall to third over the shoulder and then transitioning to first. And then something of course like Silent Hill PT, right? That is transitioning into the first person. Um, How do you find that those games, take your pick which one, have transitioned the elements that made them special in third are they able to kind of replicate that in the third? And do you see that
1: as being viable for the future of other horror franchises? I do. I'm, I'm stoked about it because I think it's a, easy is the wrong word. Um, I don't want to say it's an easy way to give you a new experience because, you know, people mm-hmm. do a lot of work on those games. But yeah. it is a simple way to give you a new perspective and new experience. And I think uh, we've seen that in horror franchises. We've seen that in movies um, where they inject new life by kind of going a different way. Uh, you need that, and and for game for development teams that haven't done that or don't do that, you've got modders. You know, I people have. I mean, someone we were talking about zombies ate my neighbors. Someone put the entirety of that game. Uh, they made it a Doom mod, so it's first person. Yep. and I have not played it yet, but I desperately need to. I have played it, and as a fan of the
0: uh, of the original, it's it's a different experience, obviously, but it still taps into my love of it and it actually made me dig out my super nintendo but (laughs) yeah neil and i have really talked about how this change in perspective can revitalize an entire franchise right neil and i have been talking a lot of case in point like resident evil for me at least i stepped away from like playing games a lot a couple of years ago like during college or whatever and resident evil 7 was one of the things that really brought me back in because i was like well I haven't played a Resi in a couple of years. I missed some of the other uh, third-person-over-the-shoulder entries they did and whatnot. And it's an easy—it the, the pers- it seems to be an easy decision to make. Oh, we could just adapt this to first-person, and yet it not only revitalized an entire franchise that's beloved, but it revitalized my love of games in a lot of ways. It brought me back, and I don't necessarily—I guess that's singular experience for me, but it still shows that, yeah— It's an easy decision, but at the same time, if you fuck it up, all of a sudden I'm going to be like, "Well, you just fucked up something that I loved for all these years. Why did you do that?" Uh, So it is—it seems seemingly easy, but it is a gamble that you have
1: to succeed on. Yeah, and and I think you know, Resident Evil Seven was so very good and so very confident. I want to say, but I I think the problem, the one big problem for me with that and eight. Is that they they want it to be this overarching story about umbrella and about experiments and yeah. frankly I think they should take in the root of just make every game Resident Evil should just be a banner name and make mm-hmm. it anthology series make, make yeah. seven your seven can be your Texas Chainsaw number eight is your Parade of Classic Monsters make number nine about aliens for all I care if it's good um, you know that might be really timely right now. With uh, this uh, declassified Congress stuff, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's. I don't think they need the overarching story. I, I would drop that if it were me.
2: Yeah, and I mean, yeah. it seems they have hinted that they will after the next one, but that just seems like it means that they'll start a whole new story again. But yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, recent Resident Evil that suggests the anthology would work because. Though it has this underlying story, they, the best parts of it work because they just do whatever the fuck they want, you know, and, and they, they carry on. I mean, um, we had this recently in an article on Bloody Disgusting where uh, it was mentioned about how Harrison Abbott mentioned about it, you know, that it was a mess of ideas, but that's what made it great to play because it was like it threw everything at the wall in terms of just like see what works, see what people enjoy. I hate the fact that people are pretty much going to tell Capcom that we just want more of giant vampire ladies and we don't care about like uh, Donovan Beneviento and things like that and you know to a lesser extent there's other characters in that game that really deserved more than address and yeah we you just gotta see how it goes but it, it, at least they gave it a shot of trying something different here there and everywhere even if it was slightly cynical in terms of like well we'll try and do every horror game thing going out there and see how it goes and yeah, yeah. cool
0: I could not agree more <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, I'm willing to die on the hill that I have never found the overarching umbrella tie-in narrative to be interesting at all to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Apart
2: from the that's book, what, uh, for, but the, the, the novelizations of the original games made me far more interested in that uh, than the games ever did. I definitely went back
0: after you recommended after our first episode yeah. where we were uh, kind of just discussing our love of Resi. I read the first two, and yeah, in a novel, it makes sense, right? They're going to flesh yeah. out these things more so, but nah, they're only... Out. A- but in terms of like the games the balance there has never been for me where it's like the narrative comes anywhere close to my engagement with the survival horror gameplay aspect and the over-reliance on shoehorning in this story and narrative with the fervor that everyone cares about as much as everybody does is just something that's always eluded me and i totally agree that like it would be fantastic to see each new installment tackle a different homage or various uh, references to like horror and monsters and things like that. I love that idea and that approach because for me, sure, you want to have Ethan Winters and throw him through the ringer every time and have that be the sort of like goofy Capcom punchline. It's just like, he's going to keep losing hands. It's going to keep being him. (laughs) He's going to keep being (laughs) bewildered when people die around him. But so long as what he's experiencing is a different tonally, aesthetically, even gameplay-wise i would totally be on board for that if i never have to hear umbrella again
1: i'm totally fine with that (laughs) and i do i do have to tell you one thing i genuinely love is that the first few resident evil games like the medicinal herbs and something you know you were like rubbing them on wounds and like you had bandages now we just got straight up magic where you pour a bottle and reattach your hand yeah Yeah. i think that's great
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean the, in the original you get bit by a zombie more than once and you don't
1: turn into a zombie right yeah. you can't ignore that, that reality <laughs> well you have to you know follow up with the novels and the uh you know the movies and the uh limited edition trading card packs that explains all that Jay
2: Oh, my bad. Yeah. See,
0: I, I have not dug deep enough into the lore, so this is <laughs> this is faulty approach on my part.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, in official canon, they don't get bit. That, so it's like, oh, okay. If, if you're doing that in the game, you're you're playing it wrong. It, my is, for, the it. official way.
0: <laughs> what, what we've revealed is that I'm just bad at games and I get bit it's, once uh, in a while.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the survival part is actually a lie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think in terms of just, like, wrapping up, I mean, there's clear benefits to each of the perspectives but I think what we're what I think we can all agree on is, is that there's something to be learned from both and yeah. whether or not you have certain perspectives or not on one or the other I think that there's something that can be taken away from both and they sh- could potentially be implemented into it's more about rather than the perspective it's the ways in which the gameplay plays out whether that be yeah. first or third and I think kind of like Michael's point when he was giving us his pitch which I think definitely has uh, legs it's the idea that everything is hopefully moving in a direction where we can progress the genre as a whole rather than just third or first person perspectives. You think, is that fair to say, Michael, or am I speaking too much for you? No, no, no.
1: I, I think you've got it. You know, it's, it's, it's about the story, it's about the, the talent of the people in front of and behind the camera. You know, it, it's about your script. Whether, and I was thinking about this too, it, it doesn't have to be about dialogue. Some of my favorite gaming experiences have little to no dialogue. Yeah um like little nightmares or you know there's some amnesia near the end but most of it sp- is just yeah we spend half the episode uh praising inside there's no dialogue in that zero dialogue with inside and, and limbo too who i think mm-hmm. is also from play dead so yeah, yeah uh I, th- I think it's it really it depends on what story you want to tell you know like i i look at something like uh the evil dead series you know bruce campbell uh like I have to tell you who, who that is, but um, <laughs> as as opposed to the 2013 one, that series would not be remotely the same, or I think as good without humor. You need that, yeah, yeah, but absolutely. And and just by the same token, Kubrick's The Shining would not have worked if uh, they were slinging jokes every which way.
2: Yeah, or even if they yeah. stuck to King's original style, I think yeah. it would have been yeah, you know, as much as. It was a dark story anyway. It was uh, it had humor in it and I think Kubrick was very much took it as the cold ghost story obsession piece it was and mm. made a very different, very energized thing out of it.
1: So so don't get me wrong because I, I love Stephen King. I mean yeah. uh, I think we all do, but oh, yeah. I am yeah. one of those people who think that Kubrick's movie outdoes the book.
2: Oh yeah I mean and I, I love I love both. You know, But it's just, I think the movie is just something else. I think we discussed this on Jay's uh, movie podcast that uh, when we were talking about Doctor Sleep, that it's just, there's a balance to be done there. And I think Kubrick defies that in a way that is admirable. And then Fanagan comes along with Doctor Sleep and sort of melts the two together. It's like it's like a, an olive branch almost between uh, styles.
0: Yeah, yeah. You can have a parallel to games, right? We see some of the best horror games are taking bits and pieces from yeah. other games and blending it together. And it's not, it, again, if you try to make a carbon copy of something that's been done before, we know how that's going to turn out. And it's more about taking a blend of influences and genres and uh, like Michael's been kind of uh, championing like this idea that you can blend things like humor into it and your project that otherwise would have been another demonic zombie-esque siege movie yeah. like Evil Dead. I mean, what would those movies really be without the humor? And yeah, it, the humor isn't in the original one, but it, it, that I think the humor that was injected so heavily into two and of course moving forwards with Army of Dead I mean that is why at least this is my opinion this is why evil dead became so prevalent right this is why everybody was talking about it in terms that was different than sort of films that it was emulating in a lot of ways yeah the the elements that it was emulating that were not humor focused if if the three stooges could have made a horror film they would have (laughs) oh absolutely absolutely yeah that's a (laughs) that's a perfect way to put it but uh michael before we let you go do you have anything you'd uh,
1: like to plug well uh, i You said it uh, up at the top, which I am very grateful for, but I'll just tell people to go to my YouTube channel, check out The Good, The Bad, and The Spooky. It's me and my friend Silas, who just came around to wanting to watch our movies had really never seen them all his life for a plethora of reasons. So, uh, every, every show is him seeing something for the first time and us discussing it. That's fantastic. And if people want to find your YouTube channel, it's the haunted drive-in, correct? The haunted drive-in, which, you know, you think people would look before they make their own channels. I'm not the only one with that name, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) besides the podcast, I also, uh, post a lot of old, uh, commercials, you know, things for McDonald's and, you know, Muppet Christmas Carol on video and, uh you remember all those ads that used to be for like music from the motion picture order now. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff, a lot of, you know, Fox Halloween bash from 1992 that I think our, our listeners and, and fans would be into. Fantastic. So guys, make sure you check that out. And uh,
0: Michael, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure uh, having you on safe room guys. Thank you so much for having me. I had an absolute blast. I'm hoping I can get to come back someday. Hope so too. Absolutely thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.